Welcome to Luthier's Tale. I'm Ben Liggett, Luthier and owner of Liggett Guitars. Every week, I interview someone that is passionate about their craft. This week, I have my first departure from guitar discussion as I chat with Jameson Chop, a knife maker based in Oregon. Be sure to visit his website, jamesonchopknives.com, or visit at jmchop on Instagram. All links are in the show's description. Let's get into it. Let me welcome Jameson Chop to the program. How are you today, sir? Doing great. Thanks for asking. You are going to be my first guest that's not guitar related. Okay. Um, All right. But I, I just I thought it was very cool to um, leave it open to speak to people who do all sorts of crafts. Mm-hmm. I think it all it all applies. You know. For sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I I actually went back and listened to the episode you uh, you recorded with Scott, and uh, definitely a lot of the things you guys talked about resonated with you know just how you guys talk and feel about the products that are made and sold and customers and what they're looking for and yeah it's definitely uh, an interesting and diverse market um i love what i do and excited to be a part of it how did you get into it were you um were you always working with your hands from a young age or what what brought you into it yeah so i kind of got into it by chance to be honest um so i grew up in minnesota i grew up on a hobby farm so i was always working with my hands i remember um, making furniture and lots of crafts at a young age with my mom. And long story short, I wound up going to college and getting a business degree and uh, graduated into the Great Recession in 2008. So I wound up working in banking for about 10 years. I did Minneapolis for about five years and cubicle and everything. Um, I was underwriting mortgages, um, you know, just right into the Great Recession. Pretty much all I could find was a temp job. So you, you started right right at 2008, like right when the recession started? Yeah. So no one was hiring. Um, a friend I graduated college with was like, hey, Wells Fargo needs mortgage underwriters for all these modifications and stuff. And um, so it was a temp job. I took it. It was the only thing I could find. It, it eventually led into full-time. And um, I knew I wanted to get out of Minneapolis and uh, moved out west. So I worked for Wells Fargo out here for three or four years and uh, really just wasn't happy at all with, I mean, living in a cubicle. You know, I wanted to get back to working with my hands. I grew up on a farm and I kind of approached it from two mindsets where I can work at the bank for the next 30 years and retire when I'm 60 and then pick up a a hobby in retirement, or I can make a change as soon as possible and pay my dues and try and make a living out of something different. So, um, you know, I, I was actually, um, I had some family members that worked in high end, like furniture building and stuff like that. So that was kind of what I had initially set out to look for. And I was looking for tradespeople in the area when I just happened to see a, uh, a knife on the front page of Reddit actually. And it was, uh, sand my blade with laminated with wrought iron. So I had some old uh, anchor chain from like the 1800s on it on the outside. And, um, you know, I went to the website. Uh, his name was Murray Carter. And he wound up being just literally like 30 minutes away from me. So uh, I kind of sent an email. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was, it was pretty, pretty interesting. Um, I sent an email essentially asking, you know, if I could sweep floors or what I could do to uh, just come see what this is all about. And 
Um, so I did go out there, went out there for about a half an hour and did like a uh, quick little kind of on the job, like here's a, here's a task, don't screw it up. So I did that and um, we had a long conversation and, uh, you know, he was looking for help pretty early on and I told him, you know, being in finance, I was like, you know, I want to make this work, but I know personally for the, the best chance for it to work is if I'm all right financially. So um, I had an auto loan and I wanted to pay down a, a few odds and ends of debt. So I sucked it up at the bank for about another nine months and uh, got enough funds saved up to where I could essentially quit cold turkey. And, uh, you know, it's, it's it was lean from the start. Um, I, I joined on as an apprentice and it's it's pretty tough because there's probably three to four months of doing it every day before you get to a point where you're really selling something that you know, you feel a hundred percent confident in. Um, and that's not to say that you're constantly changing, but it's, it's months and months of work before you're, you know, even making a few hundred bucks for the most part. Can you tell me a little bit about what you think the right way to approach, uh, uh, a craftsman is if you want to um, get in their shop and, and pick their brain a little bit, what, what do you think is the right way to go about that you know i think as long as you come in open and honest and just have in particular a desire to learn or, or talk about it like it's just important that you put yourself out there and present yourself in you know an open and honest and transparent way um you know really just how you carry yourself and interact and i think one reason why i got my foot in the door was point blank that i asked i think that there's a lot of people that you know, may swing by and kind of want to ask like, Hey, can I come learn this or that? And, um, you know, the, no one's in the business of reading minds. And I think you just kind of have to put yourself out there and, and ask, and if they say no, then, you know, they say no, but that doesn't mean that they're not willing to, to talk to you about, you know, their methodology or their philosophy. It just might mean, you know, Hey, I don't have, have, the ability to take on someone new right now. Um, in, in knives, most people are, are very willing to, to talk about it. Um, you know, whatever their processes are or their thoughts behind this design or that design or, um, this new material. And I think as long as you, as long as you really just approach it in a, a good, honest, honest way, um, I think people will open up. So you started apprenticing. What was the knife maker's name again? I'm sorry. Uh, his name was Murray Carter, uh, Carter Cutlery. Um, he he learned in Japan for, I forget how many years. I think it was like 15 years. Um, and then he's been in Oregon for probably another 10 to 15 after that. I apprenticed there for five years. And then uh, myself and another individual that used to work there uh, started our own shop. <laughs> Uh, timing is not really my thing. Um, we signed our lease February 1st of 2020. So about a month before COVID. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. that, man. It's, it's all right. Um, yeah, we're, we're alive and kicking. So <laughs> good. Good. Yeah. 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 That'll, what, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Right? <laughs> yeah. Something like that. In knife making, is that like a formality? The, the amount of, uh, time apprenticing is there like a a period of time that's considered customary 
Uh, you know, I don't think so. Um, I think it's different for everybody and kind of what you want to do with it. Uh, when I started, I kind of always had the number of five years in my mind. Um, and it just kind of happened to work out that way. Uh, I do think I probably needed two to three years in general, just to like really start to hone in on what I liked and appreciated making and, and how I like to make them. Um, but I think that that's different for everybody. You know, I, I came from an office setting and hadn't been working with my hands for a decade. Whereas someone that's, you know, a carpenter and making knives as a hobby, they're probably going to be a, a little bit quicker in terms of noticing some finer details and things like that. When someone is um, not versed in custom knives and they, they want to try one out, Mm -hmm. or, or want to purchase one, um, where's a good place to start? So first I'll start off with the best places um, that I know are typically, and I guess in a lot of major cities, um, there's typically kind of like a restaurant supply or knife store. Um, I work with a few nationally. I did one in Washington, D.C. named District Cutlery. And then uh, one, they have a pair of stores in... Uh, New Orleans and Nashville called Grutli Enola, and then one in San Antonio called Rodriguez Bitcher Supply, and then uh, Crocker Cutlery in Sacramento, but and also Meat Artisan, but they're also um, they're online only. But um, a lot of major cities will have uh, like a high end store that kind of specializes in a lot of these kind of one off type products. Um, that's where I would recommend to go get your hands on something. If you want to see something in person, a lot of them specialize in, in knives direct from Japan as well. So they'll import them directly from Japan. In terms of what you're looking for, it really is going to be down to the individual. Um, there's kind of two main th frames of thought, especially with kitchen knives, which is kind of like a European style and then a Japanese style, which is what I learned. Um, so my philosophy on kitchen knives really kind of follows that lineage, which is focus on the metallurgy. So how the steel is going to perform. Um, really, the, the biggest characteristics are toughness, strength, and then edge retention, which is a factor of hardness. And then the other thing that kind of gets lost in a lot of knives is uh, really the underlying function of it. So a knife is designed to cut and a lot of people get lost in the weeds in that the thinner the geometry of a knife is, the better it will cut. Um, and a lot of production knives and even a lot of makers will tend to leave them on the thicker side, which in my opinion uh, kind of changes the underlying function of the product you're buying. Why do you think they leave it thicker? Uh, at least with, with, in terms of production, um, honestly, uh, companies don't want to deal with the customer service. Uh, so the trade-off of having a thinner geometry is the knife is more susceptible to damage. So if it gets dropped or planted against plates, something like that, uh, you're more likely to put a dent or a ding or, you know, a, a chip in the blade. And a lot of the big companies don't want to deal with that. So they would rather leave it thick and they all do it. So it's kind of no harm, no foul for the big guys. But so just by the nature of the blade being very, very thin, there's just less resistance 
for the item you're pushing the blade through. Yeah. Is that kind of the thought? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, less resistance. And another thing that you'll kind of run into in particular, like maybe you've noticed it cutting carrots, is you'll kind of hear you'll hear a break and the blade hit the 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 blade hit the cutting board. It's actually not even cutting the carrot. It's the geometry is so thick behind the edge that you're pushing the food apart. It's it's known as wedging. So like a lot yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so my philosophy on kitchen knives is, is essentially thin. Um, it's going to cut better, not only initially, but for the long haul. In terms of steel, for, mm-hmm. for a lay person, if I'm wanting a kitchen knife, what should I look for in terms of the type of steel? And, and what are some of the trade-offs of those steel? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, there's, there's a ton of nuance because there's a lot of different stuff starting to come out. But generally what I, I deal with and what I would recommend, the biggest thing up front is do you want stainless steel or not? Um, so stainless steel, uh, it's not impervious to rust, but it's much more resistant to rust. Uh, so it's not something you need to dry right away. Um, it's something you'll still want to hand wash. Um, the other type of steel being carbon steel, uh, which will develop a patina. It, it a lot of people that like carbon steel, um, kind of, I guess one of the big uh, artistic allures to it is that it does develop a patina. So as you're cutting different types of food, it'll almost, it'll take on these different oxides and colorations. And um, it's almost just kind of has a life of its own and a story to it. Is this Damascus, is that fall in that category? Yeah, so a lot of what I'm making in terms of Damascus is carbon steel. So it will take on a patina, um, which really when you etch it to reveal those layers, is it's a forced oxidation with uh, an acidic compound. Does that oxidation on the surface, does it act like a protective coating? It does, it does. So um, yeah, it would actually help reduce rust initially, yeah. Is there a way you can maintain that when, when you when you own one and you're yeah yeah um there's so one thing that uh my partner actually does he does a lot of coffee etching so i'll you'll essentially start the etching process with um it's called ferric chloride and um that'll really kind of bring out the depth in the damascus so it'll eat away at the different seals at a different pace which is what would give the not only the contrasting colors but it'll actually change the the surface of the the seal, um, and then one way to freshen that up is essentially let the blade soak in coffee. Um, there's some nuance to it, but um, that's one way to kind of keep that contrast and color alive. Now, do you recommend they leave the really fancy wood handle out of the coffee? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, definitely. <laughs> yeah, so I'll actually use. I mean, uh, we'll use clear nail polish as a resist so typically anything that's not a synthetic will when we're etching it we'll cover it with a, a nail polish and then remove it with acetone when we're when we're done with the chemicals um in terms of uh steel i, I always hear the difference between one will be will hold an edge longer but one will can become sharper yeah uh, is that true and, and which ones do which 
There are. Um, so it's it's one of those things that, again, has some nuance. But in, in terms of generalizations, um, typically stainless steel is a softer steel. So it's a steel that will not hold an edge quite as long. Um, but it, like, again, there's, there's so much that goes into kind of the properties that you want to bring out in the steel. So, you know, like something like an outdoor knife, a lot of people will actually run that steel softer than even what a lot of kitchen knives and stainless may, may be. So I guess uh, to get into specifics, um, Rockwell is kind of the baseline for hardness that's in the, the knife industry. So yeah. a lot of kitchen knives that uh, really any knives that I make are, are between 62 and 64 Rockwell. So the stainless um, that we put out there is generally 61 to 62. And then any of the carbon seals that we run are probably 63, 64 based on the, the formula that we're following. But there's a lot of people that, you know, may make outdoor knives in the 58 to 60 range because the softer the seal, generally the tougher it is. So it's going to take a little more use and abuse out in the field. So kind of stacking that up, even a softer stainless steel kitchen knife may, you know, hold an edge better than a carbon outdoor knife that's at 58. So, um, yeah. Yeah. When you say toughness, is that, is the softer steel, are, are you meaning that it's less prone to chipping? Mm -hmm. Sharp edge? Yeah. So toughness and strength are kind of oddly enough inverse of each other. So toughness is like the, the physical wear and tear pounding of it. Um, you know, if you, if you have a knife and you're, you know, hitting antler or, or chopping wood or something like that. And strength is essentially kind of the, I guess, the just the actual strength of it. So if you were flexing it, um, how prone it is to breaking in that manner. Um, nice. so nice. yeah. So with it's like almost a, like, like toughness is like malleability. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Um, huh. And so they're kind of inverse of each other. And then along with that, um, hardness is inverse with edge retention. So the harder, I guess not inverse, the harder the blade, the better the edge retention, the softer, the, mm. the worse. So if, if you're using a, um, a large uh, kitchen knife, say for chopping vegetables, mm -hmm. um, is there a blade shape that you think is optimal? Um, you know, it's, it's, it really does come down to the individual, um, and the task. Yeah. Um, I, so me personally, I kind of like a seven inch chef's knife, like, uh, I would call it a funiyuki, um, which is the Japanese term for it. Uh, but like my, my shopmate, he rarely will use anything under eight and a half to nine inches. He just prefers big knives. He can do more work with it. Whereas myself, I'm just not as good with a knife. So it, it really is user specific. But um, with that said, when someone does come to me and ask, you know, hey, I want to buy a knife, like I want to get my foot in the door and try it, like kind of what I recommend is about a seven inch chef's knife because you can pretty much do everything you need with it. 
Yeah, good all around kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Tell me about these beautiful handles. Thank you. Um, and uh, what are some of your favorite woods to use in, in, in other materials, non-wood material? Yeah. Um, favorite woods, probably Arizona desert ironwood is up there. Um, it's super easy. It's really stable, really hard. Um, doesn't need to be stabilized. Um, snake wood, uh, same thing. Doesn't need to be stabilized. It does tend to warp a little bit more. Um, and actually check checking is kind of a big one with that one. So a lot of CA glue goes into that. Um, and then Koa and Mango are, are awesome. Um, Koa comes with a price tag, but Mango is still relatively cheap depending on where you're looking. Um, and I think Koa gets used a lot in the guitar world, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah. They, they make uh, a lot of acoustic guitars out of those back and okay. sides usually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, yeah. I'm jealous that you you get away with uh, smaller pieces. <laughs> yeah, I was just gonna say we <laughs> we kind of make do with the offcuts that you guys wind up getting rid of. Um, yeah, yeah, a lot of I think. I've, you know, I was going through your Instagram and I saw a few of the suppliers you buy from and stuff like that. And it's a lot of the same people. A lot of times I'll just reach sure. out and ask what kind of scraps and cutoffs they've got. And, you know, usually I can get a box full, which is, is yeah, nice. that's and, awesome. and I, I just feel good knowing that, you know, it's beautiful wood that's getting used on something. So, yeah, I like natural materials. Same, same. Um, in terms of synthetics, I do use like carbon fiber, micarta, some G10, um, a lot of the kind of the colorful accents on the, the liners on the wood is usually G10 or micarta. Do you, uh, do you ever mess with veneers and such like layering stuff? Um, veneers, not so much. Um, you know, it's, it's a little bit bigger in like the folding knife world, which isn't something I've, uh, I've really gotten into, um. Yeah, not so much, but there there definitely are people out there that do it. Do you carry a, a knife? Do you have an everyday carry knife? I do um, carry a fixed blade pocket knife. Uh, mine is probably it's probably about three and a quarter inches blade. Um, you know, a lot of people. I guess everyday carries kind of. I guess I would say a lot of people tend to carry a larger knife than they need, but. Um, Mm-hmm. You know, for a three-inch blade, I can do just about everything I need. Do you um, do you have like a a, a belt sheath or an in-pocket sheath? Um, I typically just drop it in my pocket. Um, the other thing I'll do is I I wear it around my neck sometimes as a neck sheath. Um, cool. Yeah, it's just like depending on what you're doing in the shop or or whatever, like it can be, or like if you're out in the yard doing yard work, like it can be really handy to to just have it around your neck and right there as opposed to kind of digging through your pocket or if it's a folder, um, you know, unclipping it. But yeah. How about you? Uh, it's a, a it, it's a Kershaw, uh, kin onion. Okay. It's, it's, it's kind of a pointy blade. It doesn't like curve. It's good for opening boxes. Oh yeah. That's, yeah. That's yeah. Like 99% of what I use it for. Dude, no shame. That's what most people use <laughs> their, their knives for. 99% is yeah, cutting open cardboard boxes. <laughs> yeah. I actually need to sharpen it. Uh, I was, that was another thing I was going to ask you about was yeah. sharpening. Um, 
for my even at the at my shop when I'm using chisels and such. Uh, yeah, I have a work sharp sharpener. Okay, uh, which is like a little turntable thing. It's got little glass wheels with uh, sticky sandpaper on them. Okay, and then at home I have a a work sharp like a belt loop kind of thing or like a, a sanding belt. Okay, sharpener. Are those terrible? Am I committing a sin? So the one thing I would say about like the belts and when you're running it along the blade like that, I guess two things I would say. Um, first mm-hmm. thing you want to watch for is any heat buildup. So yeah. essentially if you wind up with any discoloration, so like a straw brown or anything darker, um, mm-hmm. it's it's what you're doing is bringing heat into the blade. So once once the knife hits straw brown it hits 350 ish degrees fahrenheit and that is probably hotter than what the temper on the seal is so if you're going above the temper on it you're softening the seal further i see does that make sense so, have you so, have you have you brought color into the yeah, blade <laughs> i have not I, there's no okay. color on All the right. blade that's good Thank good knock on wood yeah. yeah what do you sharpen your own knives with so I 100% recommend Japanese water stones. Yeah. So, and you know, it's, it's kind of like anything. Once you go down the rabbit hole, you know, you can find $10 stones or several hundred, you know, if not mm-hmm. more stones, but um, you know, the stones I use and recommend it's, it's two stones total. And it's probably about 70, to 80 bucks total on Amazon. Um, really? Yeah. So like I use what it. Grits do you- I use a King 1000 and a 6,000 grit stone. As far as I'm concerned, West stones are, they take a little more, a little more work, a little more time. Um, and for a lot of people, they're intimidating because it's freehand, but it's the most versatile. Um, you're really able to really full service and, and maintain any knife that you want with them, in my opinion. I always have the, the edge as the trailing part of the blade, so I'm leading with the spine and mm-hmm. yeah, just trailing behind it. Um, and then I just kind of, so you have your stones in front of you with like a, a bridge across a sink or something. And um, you really just start with the tip and, and run it along the edge at a low angle. Um, there's a ton of great YouTube videos on it. It's a, it's a little, a little hard to describe on podcasts, but um, sure. there's, sure, sure. yeah, there's a ton of great videos on it. Um but the other thing that I was going to kind of bring up with the uh, the work sharp that you can do on water stones is you can use them to thin the blade. So kind of the other downside of those grinders is if you think of the cross section of a knife, it's just a, a triangle, a wedge. And then at the bottom, you have your your primary edge, which is the blade cutting edge. And as you remove material from that edge with the grinder if you can just kind of imagine it going higher and higher into that wedge and it's actually changing the geometry of the knife. So the amount of metal that's immediately behind the knife is getting thicker and thicker, um, uh, which is kind of like, it's, it kind of gets back to the production knife philosophy of something that gets lost in, in knives is, you know, they're meant to cut and everyone talks about sharpening that primary edge, but, you know, if you start to remove too much material, the knife itself just isn't going to cut well. 
um, with water stones, you can use, you can lay the knife flat on its, its side and remove material that way. So as you're grinding farther and farther up into your knife, you can use those stones to abrade away excess thickness. I'm definitely having to, uh, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to up my sharpening game after this conversation. All good, man. Like, you know, it's like a lot of people are intimidated by it, but like once you start doing it, a lot of people find it therapeutic and, you know, you can sharpen as much or as little as you want. I know people that do it weekly because they just find it therapeutic or, you know, and I know people that do it once a year. It's really depends on the user. I I was asking you earlier about handles. Is there a handle you've found is uh, your favorite shape for certain applications? Um, you know, not, not really. Um, I, I guess I would say I've, yeah, you know, I would say I've kind of gotten into doing more faceted handles lately. Um, I like, I like having a little bit of a ridge for indexing, just, you know, knowing how that knife is in my hand, how you can feel those ridges and grow accustomed to them and you kind of know the orientation, but you know, I've got a lot of customers that prefer when I, you know, if they through a custom order, just make them a rounded handle and everything's smooth and that's what they know. And that's what they prefer. Um, so in that sense, I just kind of try and make it, I kind of try and make it comfortable kind of in general and then stay consistent in that realm. So, you know, I tend to make handles this way and at this thickness, at this length and, that's just kind of what I do because at the end of the day, like I have no idea who that knife is going to, um, you know, unless it's a custom order. But if I'm, if I'm selling it online, I have no idea if that person is five feet or six and a half feet and you know, how they like to, to handle their knife. So, um, you know, occasionally if I do take a custom order, someone will say, Hey, I've got, you know, I've got bare hands. Can you make the handle a half inch longer? And, you know, I'll, do what I can to accommodate that for sure. Man, the, yeah, yeah. It, it's kind of. Uh, do you get an anxiety when you like send things out in the world and, and you don't know where they are? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> oh man, yeah. It's my little bit. Yeah, like it's rough, man. Like I, I, I should say it has been rough. Um, like I've suffered with OCD quite a bit, and. Uh, yeah, like whether it's like something crazy that I've made and sent off and you just hope that it's living its best life somewhere. And like, that's not to say like, I don't want to use like I everything I make, I want used. Like I, it's one of yeah. my, my biggest compliments is like when I, a kitchen knife that I made three years ago that I distinctly remember comes back for, you know, sharpening or service. And you can just tell that it's, been used almost every day by someone and they send a note saying they love it and everything i make i want to get used but totally like um yeah i i really struggle with putting the finishing touches on a product to send out and just uh make it you know nothing's perfect like everything we do is handmade but as a maker you just can't help but you know as you're putting the finishing touch on like is this something i want to touch up is this is there a scratch there? Do I need to 
you know, hit it with some 800 and, and rebuff it or. Yeah. So I'm sure you, you <laughs> yeah. had the situation where you, yeah. you, you go, Oh, is that a little scratch? And then you start yeah. messing with it and it's a three hour ordeal. It's a three hour ordeal. And before you know it, you're less happy with it than when you first picked it up. And like, I like when I'm, I, I've learned through the years that like, I need to totally remove like all stimulus when I'm going through that mental process for myself. Like, I listen to podcasts and music all day, every day, but when I'm getting ready to, to send something out, like earphones come out, like I can't even have them in and off. Like I can't have any type of like that sensory, like just blocking my mind. Um, you just, you, are you saying, cause you want to be focused for, to make sure you finish it up and be done with it kind of thing? Yeah. I've just found that I tend to go down that anxiety rabbit hole a lot more when I have, something else in my mind as well um it's i wouldn't say that i'm more focused or less focused it just like something that yeah I, it's something i've noticed just like no music or or podcasts or anything and um that really helps me i'm sure there's plenty of other people out there that know this feeling that we're <laughs> talking yeah, about <laughs> yeah do you have do you have headphones in all the time uh, i would say like 80 90 of the time yeah yeah, I do too. Um, I, I've noticed, like, I, I know what you mean by anxiety. Like, sometimes if you're, like, trying to concentrate on something or really, really focus, it's like the, the headphones in can help you get in the zone. But sometimes, yeah, if it's, like, too much stimulus, totally. the anxiety, like, builds. And it's almost like uh, I feel my breathing shorten a little bit. Absolutely. And, I was just going like, to say that. I just got to take them out. It's kind of like when you're driving and you're trying to like navigate and you got to turn the radio down. Like that makes no sense, but yeah. Yeah. Like I cannot focus unless <laughs> I turn <laughs> yeah. down. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It's bizarre. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I really do enjoy the, the kind of solitary, uh, pursuit though. Do I do too. Enjoy yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm starting to appreciate it more and more. Um, definitely for like the last few years, I was really into like podcasting or trying to listen to anything and everything because you don't want to miss out, but I'm really starting to enjoy kind of turning things down and, um, just listening to less stuff and kind of cutting some of that stuff out of your life. If you really don't feel passionate about it. Yes, for sure. Um, can, can I ask some like metallurgy questions? They're not going to be yeah, yeah. specific, but, um, when you're, are you folding steel or, or, or are you buying blanks already folded or how, how does that process work? Yeah. So it's a, it's a little bit of a variety of everything. Um, so basically anything that's stainless steel, I, be, I don't forge that. Uh, and there's there's some metallurgical reasons behind that. Um, basically, stainless steel likes hot temperatures, um, both for forging and heat treating. And the, the, the issue with that is at high temperatures, you're, you're losing carbon through scale. So um, as you're forging, you'll see this kind of like black flaky stuff come off of the seal and it's what's known as scale and it's basically carbon and oxygen bonding and removing carbon from the seal 
negatively impacts its metallurgical properties. Um, the other thing is, as steel is heated up, the grain is growing, and ideally, you want a nice fine grain structure. Um, so stainless steel, I don't forge. Uh, that's all stock removal. But anything else that essentially like Damascus or Sanmai, which is a three-layer laminate, um, is something that I'm, I'm forging myself in shop. And then, yeah, so like Damascus, I'll, I'll start with 15 or 20 layers of steel and then forge weld that into one homogenous billet and then cut that up into you know five sections and restack that and forge that out and eventually put what I want to be the core in there. Um, and then all of that stuff, I will heat treat in house. So I'll run it through its, its normalizing and thermal cycle and then anneal it to soften it so that I can work it in shop and then eventually quench and temper it. Um, is the quench and temper, uh, after you, you're basically finished with the blade? Um, so that's actually pretty early on. Um, Okay. basically what I would do is I would forge out the knife um, and then I'll run it through its, its initial temperature cycles, which will at the end of like the last thing would be a kneel, which would soften it up. So I can, you know, I, I would scribe out whatever design I want in there. If it's a kitchen knife or an outdoor knife, and then I would cut it out with a bandsaw and then mm. run the profile to exactly where I want it to be. Um, after that, I would, what I would do, and everyone has a little bit of a different process, but um, then I would harden the blade probably at full thickness um, for sand mai. Uh, and then I would start to grind the bevels in. Um, probably, let's see here. I would grind the bevels in, and then I usually start to kind of prep handles before before the, the grinding is all done, depending on what it is and how how much grinding I'm going to do. Am I going to leave a forge finish on? If it's Damascus, I, it's something I'll have to hand sand. So I'll do a lot of the handle work before I actually hand sand it because stuff gets scratched and scuffed up along the way. Um, but probably, I would say, in terms of processes, a stainless steel knife probably takes about six to seven hours to make. A sand mine knife probably takes about eight to 10 hours to make. And a Damascus knife is probably between 20 and 35 hours, depending on really what you're getting into. Wow. Yeah. Um, you, you, you were saying sand mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you spell that? Uh, it's S-A-N space M-A-I. Okay. okay. And it's... Yeah, it's Japanese for three layer, um, and really, it's it's the format that I learned through knife making. Um, it's a so with the three layer laminate, kind of the the perks of it are you can put uh, you can kind of change the the properties and philosophy of the knife itself. So, like generally speaking, what I'll do with Sanmai is have a high carbon steel core that's you know, strong, it's tough, and it'll hold an edge for a long time. But then on the outside, you can put something that's softer, more malleable to add toughness to the blade. It's not as fragile, it's not as brittle. Um, or vice, you can also add stainless steel outside, which um, 
you know, helps with corrosion. So you can have the perk of having a, a really great cutting edge with some ease of maintenance with a steel that's less prone to rusting on the outside. Wow. So that's... Yeah, you can kind of custom yeah. Tailor, yeah. tailor it how you want. So, yeah, you can totally kind of, you know, there's, you can, you can tailor it for functionality. You can tailor it for aesthetics. Um, there's so much you can do once you start to go down that rabbit hole. Yeah. You know, all the forging stuff, you know, I was a machinist and, and stuff okay. like that. So I've worked with metal. I've done a little welding, but like the, the metal always just arrived, you know what I yeah. mean? We never did any forging and then it's always like this mysterious absolutely and that fortune fire has um say what you will about it but it's it's drawn a lot of attention to the industry and um my shop mate alex horn actually he won an episode oh, it was season it's 7 11 season 7 episode 11 um oh nice yeah have you have you ever watched the show i have not i've heard about it okay yeah you should check it out it's you get a kick out of it it's a uh, it's a James show-esque show, but I mean, they're all making like Damascus knives under a time crunch. It's, it's a, uh, it's pretty, pretty fun to watch. Are, are there just some real, real talents that stand out? There are. Um, yeah. Especially in like seasons like two and three, there was a lot of really prominent makers that, that went on and, and did it. There's some really cool stuff that came out of there for sure. Oh, awesome. I got to check that out. Yeah. It, well, I when I was a kid, I grew up with like biker build-off and stuff like that. Okay. So yeah. I, I loved, you know, people in their workshops making stuff. And, Absolutely. Yeah. Is there a, um, we, you know, Scott and I, we kind of talked about like responsiveness with guitars. Is there like a a, a magic thing you're you're chasing with with the knives, like something that's hard to uh, define you know in my mind I, I don't know if i'd say it's hard to define but in my mind like the holy grail of kitchen knife is something that's just thin and cuts great for long periods of time just because of the geometry of it um i think that it's something that's definitely been lost in the last you know i don't even know what time frame I'd put on it, but just kind of in this age of everything mass produced and bought at big box stores, I think the idea of a, an actual high performance kitchen knife has been lost. And um, being able to provide that, I'm super excited about every day. Man, thank you so much for talking with me today. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. <laughs>